0: Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the vase to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, Seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This was the word of Lord.
1: His Helen. Hi everyone, my name is Mike. Welcome to church at nine. Um, if I haven't met you, um, I usually look after the kids' ministry, and i uh, say I get the privilege of having a look at um, this very sort of sad trial of Jesus before the Jewish leaders. I wanted to ask you though to start um, hey, this morning, do you want to experience the Have you experienced the power of God? Do you want to? Are you ready to activate the power of God in your life? Maybe you've um, come along today for the first time, or you've been visiting church. And part of the reason, perhaps, that you're here today is because maybe this church Christianity thing, there's something bigger. There's something maybe something powerful bigger than yourself, and you want to come and find out what that is. Um, or maybe you identify as a Christian already, but maybe you feel like you sort of plateaued as a Christian, you're not growing the way that you used to. And there's sins that perhaps are just recurring in your life and you just can't um, get out of that kind of rut, you're going through the motions perhaps. And so maybe you wouldn't call it power, but maybe you're looking for something extra just to sort of lift you up out of a bit of that rut. You know, there's a whole bunch of books, by the way, on um, this topic of the power of God. I've just got a list of some of the titles i found. So there's God's power in you, experiencing the miracle power of God, activating God's power in you, the secret place of God's power. And my favorite one is seven days of power, Colvin, unleashing God's power every week, comma, with declarations and goal setting ideas. If you want to experience the power of God today, you've actually come to the right passage because today God is going to make it extremely clear that His power is evident. But there's a warning. There's a warning. And the warning is that our passage also reminds us that it's very easy to look for God's power in the wrong places. So we need to ask for God's help today as we come to this um, really important part gospel. So will you bow your heads and we'll pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us around your word. Would you enable us to put away the distractions in our minds and in our hearts, so that as we hear the gospel today as part of Matthew's gospel, we pray that you would reveal and show us your mighty power in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you've just joined us, we are working through the events that have led up to the death of Jesus. And on a human sort of perspective, it's actually a very lonely journey. As Jesus is betrayed, he's abandoned slowly, but surely he's arrested and he's put on trial today. Um, But on a heavenly perspective, and one of the things that's been sort of running through the gospel as we've been going through it is that from a heavenly point of view, actually everything is going exactly the way that God had planned it. So why don't you come with me, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Um, um, Just to give you some sort of... um, Uh, helpful information, Um, collectively sort of the high priests and these kind of elders and scribes, they were sort of the people who were the Jewish, represented kind of the Jewish leadership. And one of the reasons that they actually put Jesus on trial today is because um, for them, they were waiting to see God's power in the arrival of someone very in particular. And they, they call this person the Christ or the Messiah. And they were expecting this person to arrive and to rescue the nation of Israel, to restore Israel to the top of the pecking order and to rescue them from the enemies of God. But to them, Jesus is masquerading as a sort of fake Messiah. This can't be the real Messiah that we've been waiting for. He's weak, he's been arrested, he's been betrayed, he's not powerful at all. And so today we're gonna witness sort of a hearing as he stands before the Jewish leadership. Now, um, I lead a Bible study on Wednesday nights, and I don't know how this happened, but half our group are lawyers. It's a very intimidating group to be a part of. And as we've come to the trial, as we actually spoke about it this week, um, one of the things that they notice very clearly is that this trial is actually over before it begins. Do you notice there, if you come down and have a look at verse 59, Matthew keeps saying that what were they seeking, what they were trying to do, they were trying to get false testimony and trying to get false witnesses in order to put Jesus to death. Now, what does Matthew mean when he says false testimony and false witness? He doesn't mean that they were just trying to, you know, plant the evidence, make up lies against Jesus, because they could have done that quite easily. They could have just got two people come up with the same lie, so they could have said, got someone to say, you know, I I saw Jesus graffiting the temple and cursing the name of God and starting an uprising. And then they could have got you know, another person to say, yes, I also saw Jesus graffiting the temple and cursing God and starting an uprising. But that's not what Matthew means when he says false testimony. What Matthew means when he says false testimony he means that the proceedings are not a genuine quest for the truth about Jesus. They they might have attempted to stick to the Old Testament law, but Matthew makes it clear that what they're really looking for is not the truth. They're just looking for something to stick in order to condemn Jesus to death. And that's why when they finally get two witnesses in verses 60-61, you'll have a look there, the evidence is not even that accurate. So have a look at verse 60. He says, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Um, That quote, it's, it's not even recorded in Matthew's gospel. Jesus, he has spoken about the temple. He said one greater than the temple is here. He has said that the temple will be destroyed at some point, but he's never spoken it in terms of the words that he's been accused of here. And again, our lawyers pointed out, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, does it? Because if you're not looking to get to the bottom of the truth, if you're not trying to actually listen to Jesus for who he is, then it doesn't matter if your words are 100% accurate or not. They found something which they're happy to stick with. How would you feel if you were in Jesus' position, I wonder? Accused of something that is absolutely false. You know it's not true. How would you respond, how would I respond if you were in Jesus' shoes? And we run a a Bible study, like a, I guess a kid's club on Friday afternoon at our St. Thomas' church, one of the things that happens every Friday is that a child comes up to me and says, X threw a ball at my head. And for the next five minutes, what inevitably happens is that child X spends five minutes vigorously defending themselves from all accusations. It wasn't me. She threw it at me first. That is, there's this human impulse, isn't there, to actually defend ourselves from accusations. Even if it's true. Yet Jesus, the most innocent man who ever lived, what does he do? He doesn't defend himself. He remains silent. Why does he do that? Why would you not stick up? Because we know that Jesus is capable of arguing arguing and standing up for himself. He's done it before in the Gospels. Why does he choose to remain silent in our passage today? I think there's two reasons. I think there's two reasons. Number one, um, as we've seen kind of woven throughout the narrative so far, um, this is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53 spoke about a Messiah, a Christ, and this Christ will be one who would be mistreated. He would be physically and verbally abused. And yet the Christ would be silent. He would not retaliate. And this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. I think there's a second reason that Jesus remains silent here. And I think he's actually showing us some very um, helpful wisdom when it comes to our evangelism. So remember how we said that the high priest and the Jewish council, they weren't interested in the truth, were they? They were just seeking something to stick in order to put Jesus to death. Now, what would be the point of Jesus replying when someone has already made their mind up about it? I think all of us know that situation where someone has a point of view and they're so um, stuck in that idea that any words you sort of say will just give them more fuel for the fire, entrench them in their own position. And so Jesus, I think, is actually very clever here. He decides to remain silent. And I think this is some helpful advice when we evangelize to our friends and our family. Sometimes they'll be so, have such preconceived ideas about Christianity and the church. Maybe it's the church's position on things like sexuality. And you can try to talk to them, but the more you speak to them, the more you find that they're actually not interested in investigating the claims of the Christian faith and Jesus himself and more they actually become um, entrenched in their beliefs. Sorry. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying use this as a strategy for evangelism. So Roy, let's take Roy as an example. If Roy this week has an opportunity to share the gospel, and next week we ask, well, hey, Roy, how was your conversation with your friend? And Roy says, oh, it was, it was really good. I remain silent. I was just like Jesus and I didn't say anything. That's not what I'm saying. No, actually, de- declaring the faith and evangelism actually involves speaking the truth of the gospel. All I'm saying is that actually um, it gives us some perspective not to be surprised when you can make the gospel as clear as day, but it's not received as truth. And that's why we speak the gospel, we also pray for Because apart from the work of God, people will not come to receive the truth as the truth. Things are getting frustrating for the Jewish council. So what happens next is the high priest steps in and he puts Jesus under oath. So come with me to verse 63. The high priest says, I adjure you, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds could spend a whole weekend away exploring these two verses. There's actually a whole bunch of detail within these two verses alone. Some of these words are incredibly loaded. But for today, what I want us to see is a bit of a contrast. I want you to just have a look at the difference between the high priest's question and Jesus' response. So do you notice the difference? The high priest says, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And how does Jesus respond? He says, well, you said so. I'm the son of man. It's a bit of a, like, the the answer doesn't quite match the question. Son of God? Are you the son of God? Yes, I'm the son of man. What's going on here? What's going on here? It's a little bit like, I just want you to imagine if you're on on an airplane flight, I hope this doesn't happen to you, but imagine you're on a flight and someone has a, you know, a medical episode and uh, everyone's, who's a doctor? finally find someone and we say are you a doctor and the person says yes i'm a doctor i have a phd in agricultural economics okay so i think what jesus is doing here is saying the question being asked is are you the christ are you this leader this political leader this warrior who will rescue us from our enemies and deliver us and you know what jesus says i think he says yes but not in the way that you think I am. Yes, but I'm the son of man. Now that term is incredibly important. I know if you've been working our way through the gospel, you've heard this term before, but today makes it really important that we understand this term. Look, if you've got a Bible there, I really would like you to appreciate it if you come over to Daniel chapter 7. And I feel like we read Daniel 7 at church a lot chapter 7. So if you feel like we're reading Daniel 7 a lot, then I think that's a good thing. So Daniel 7 is a passage where you have a vision of of God seated and the books of judgment are open. So it's time for judgment and God is seated. And something unexpected happens. Instead of just judgment being executed unexpectedly, one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, God himself. And what happens in that moment is that God actually hands the authority of judgment over to this one called the Son of Man. And some of this language is just extraordinary. We come down to verse 14. To him, this Son of Man, Daniel 7, 14, was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom will be one that shall not be I'm so shocked by the son of man it's just such a grand description that I would love some water because I'm just so amazed at this declaration are you the son of God yes I am the son of man are you the Christ yes but Jesus puts it in the grandest possible terms I am the one who God has actually handed all authority not just for a single nation at a single time. But I'm the one who God has actually handed authority and power and dominion for all nations at all times. That is incredible. If you want to have a look at the power of God this morning, is it not Jesus, the Son of Man, who has received all authority over heaven and earth? Friends, that is a so big that it's actually hard to figure out sometimes what that actually means in the world in which we live so uh, here are a few things that it means that Jesus is the son of man with all dominion. it means that nothing goes on in this world unnoticed by Jesus there's no war, there's no invasion which happens that will go unpunished by this Jesus There is no natural disaster that occurs without them knowing. For our little lives, it means that Jesus sees you and he sees me. There is no sin that's hidden from his sight. Even though other people don't see it, the Lord Jesus as the Son of Man sees it. It means that Jesus will judge us not on the person that we presented to other people, but he will judge us based on who we really are and what we're really like it means that jesus has the power to determine where you and i and every single individual that has ever lived he will determine where they will spend all of the time. are you the son of god yes i'm the to that kind of power, though. How do you respond to that level of power? I mean, if you think about it, we respond to power all the time in our everyday facets of life. So we submit to our governments, most of us do. We listen and submit to our bosses at work. I assume you turn up on time each day and you dress for the part and you do your work as best as you I was, I remember when I was interviewing for um, this minister, children's minister position at this church, I had to be interviewed by our senior minister, Kevin, Kim. and if you've ever met Kevin, he's an incredibly approachable guy, but I just remember feeling so nervous. And I was going to make sure my socks were matching, and I, um, and I was nervous because Kevin had the power to either bring me on. What about about this kind of power? For if what Jesus is saying is true, he's not just the one in power over one particular facet of your life. He's actually the one with power and authority over every aspect of your life and my life. How do you respond to someone as grand and as powerful as this? Well, the first thing I want to say is actually, it's quite a sad reality that in our passage, there's actually two responses to the Son of Man, and they're both wholly inadequate. So come with me, the first one is the high priest. You'll notice there in verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses The high priest, the one who was to be appointed as a shepherd of God's people, stands face to face with God's real Messiah, and he says, you are a blasphemer, you are a believe that? The one in whom God actually gave um, power to lead his people, would so-called the true Messiah, a blasphemer, and a liar. Or well, there's a second response in that passage today. Did you notice it right at the beginning? Peter says this. He says, Peter, what did he do in verse 58? notice what Matthew is doing very intentionally here. Next week we're going to see Peter deny Jesus outright but what Matthew does here in this passage is he places Peter physically not with Jesus but he places him physically with the guards. And that is Peter made a declaration in the past that he would follow Jesus but he is not willing to follow Jesus and be with him when the going gets tough. And I think there's a, there's a lesson here in discipleship for us who would be followers of Jesus. That maybe we've actually made a declaration to follow Jesus in the past. But if you actually think about your life, and if I think about my life, could it be that our lives look basically identical to the world around us? Yeah, I'll go to church, but it's, well, it's not too convenient. I'll give money to the cause of the gospel if I have left over. I won't speak about the gospel or share that news if it sort of causes tension. Friends, that is not an adequate response either, to follow Jesus in the comfort of your own life. Jesus, you are a liar, a blasphemer, Can I take us to one more passage to finish our time today? Can you please click over in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1? Because there is one more response to the Son of Man from Matthew 26. Revelation chapter 1. For those of you who are familiar with Revelation, it's a vision of a follower of Jesus named John. And In Revelation chapter 1, John has a vision of the Son of Man. You'll see it there in verses 9 to 14. In verse 13, he notices one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And I want you to notice chapter 1 in verse 17. John writes, When I saw him... When I saw the Son of Man in all his power, what does he do? He says, he doesn't say, I, I called him a liar. And he doesn't say, I followed him from the comfort of my own home. He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. If you're faced with the one who has been given all authority over every part of your life and mind, there is no other response appropriate except to fall down on our faces in worship, to say, sorry, we can't believe we've been rejecting or turning away from you this whole time. He fell on his feet at Jesus' feet as though dead. So friends, have, have you responded in this way to Jesus as the Son of Man? And we can convince you every week That you need to trust in Jesus, put your trust in him, trust that his death can forgive you from your sins. But on the day of judgment, the reality is that your opinion about Jesus is not going to matter that much. If he's the son of man who hands out the judgment, then it's his opinion about you and about me which really matters. So, which side? to unleash God's power, you want to have a seven-day program which helps you experience the power of God, I think the answer in today's passage is not, well, you need to pray harder and you need to ask for extra faith to experience God today. The answer that our passage today gives us is to expand your vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lift your vision. And it's not just, um, you know, recite the words that he's our Lord and our Saviour, but it's actually expand your vision that Jesus is the powerful Son of Man who will stand in judgment over each one of us, who sees every small detail of our life. Not even a small, low-level theft in a remote village in Cambodia goes unnoticed from the Son of Man. So if you want to experience the power of God today, expand your vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're already a Christian and you feel like you're plateauing in your growth, the answer is not simply just to try harder and to kind of put off your sin each day. As important as those things are, our passage says, actually, if you want to grow in your faith, have a clearer and a bigger picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, who stands as the Son. Well, to finish today, I just wanted to share a quote by a famous Christian philosopher from the 17th century. You may have heard of him. His name is Blaise Pascal, and um, he wrote these words. He says, I do not admire the excess of a virtue like courage unless I see at the same time an excess of the opposite virtue. We show greatness not by being at one extreme, but by touching both extremes at once and occupying all the space in between. Just to translate that a bit for you, Pascal is saying, do you know what real greatness and power looks like? It's it's not the one who has extreme authoritarian power and nothing else. It's actually the one who has extreme power on one end, and yet also has an extreme opposite virtue on the other end. And here's the incredible thing about our Lord Jesus Christ, is that Jesus is the perfect Son of Man. He has, on one extreme, all power and all authority, and he will declare where each one of us will spend eternity. And yet, on the other extreme, this is the same Son of Man actually came in his authority, not to be served and to beat us into submission, but actually to serve us and give his life as a ransom for me. This is the Son of Man with all power and all authority, and it is the Son of Man who also gives his life to forgive us as he goes to the cross for us. So you and I don't need to get past security guards to get to this Jesus. We don't need to shout louder to get to this Jesus. He actually invites us to come speak to him, to come receive his forgiveness and enjoy the blessing under his rule and his authority for all time. So will you pray with me that we have a much clearer and bigger picture of the son of man Father God, we um, are so sort of taken aback by the claims of Jesus. If What he says is true today, Father. We are standing in complete awe that you've handed all power to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I particularly ask, Father, that for those of us who have yet to come under his Lordship, would you please grant us a great vision and a clear picture of his power and his might. But Father, we also pray that you would enable us to see that in his power, he comes to serve us in his death and resurrection. So Father, we praise you that we can draw near to you as we come in prayer. And we do ask that each one of us, whether we are Christian or not yet Christian, we pray that our vision and picture of Jesus can so be,